Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it's been a good while since I was on the air last, but I just want to let you all know that I have not forgotten about you all. And the good news is that I'm on tonight to share with you all another segment to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America. As I've said before, and I could say it again, that life does not always revolve around podcasting. Of course, this is not my primary job. It's a side hobby, but it's certainly well worth the time investing in. But I also know that other things in life often will take precedent over podcasting, and that's not a bad thing either, too, regardless of what the matter is. The bottom line is that if I placed all my energy into one thing all the time, I really wouldn't be able to have much of a life in terms of doing everything else that I enjoy doing. So it's good to um, balance as many things uh, as there are possible. So since the time I was on the air last with you guys, I did um, have enough time to prepare for what's going to be in store for this uh, podcast segment, which is important. But what we're going to be talking about in this segment is... Um, obviously relevant um, with, uh, rather I should say, with an abundance of relevant information, just like we've learned from other uh, podcast segments to the topic of, that we're currently on. However, what we're going to be discussing has to do uh, with the Susquehannock Indians, but also a confrontation involving some Englishmen and an Indian tribe that has strong uh, trading relations with the English to where this ultimately could be a make-or-break uh, scenario. Of course, whenever there's a confrontation involving English and Indians, I mean, history has always proven that it has not always been for the better um, purposes, but this is one that, um, to me, could have been avoided because a few Englishmen decided to do something that, in my opinion, was uncalled for, it only led to further uh, problems within the greater uh, Virginia colony, most notably amongst those whom are trying to restore order. Of course, if I tell you, if I were to tell you all any more, you might probably know what direction I'm going in. And if and if, and if I um, don't stop here, then I'm, some of you might as well say, "Well, Kirk, if you keep on going with this right now, what's the point in actually even having the podcast segment?" So. The most important thing is to give you all an inclination or some kind of understanding on where it is we're going. So I think it's time to um, hit the road and uh, get going with our uh, leadoff question for this um, segment, podcast segment to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by James D. Rice. So here is our first leadoff question. Whom exactly was... Possaclay, and that is spelled P-O-S-S-E-C-L-A-Y. Of course, if you took out the word clay, it would say posse. So some could say Possaclay, others could say posse clay. Anyways, uh, posse clay was the head chief of the Okaniches. Okay, we all have already learned about who the Okaniches are. Do the Okaniches live along the Virginia-North Carolina line, or is there, um, or would you say their uh, town or their uh, village, their uh, confines, is it along the Virginia-North Carolina line, or is it along the Virginia-Maryland line? My answer is choice A. The Okaniches, remember, they're right along the Virginia-North uh, Carolina line. And for those of you who live along the Virginia-North Carolina line and have been uh, paying attention to this uh, book topic discussion. Uh, you know, when, whenever I think of the Okaniches, uh, I would think of, um, you know, places like, you know, modern-day uh, Clarksville, Virginia, where there's Carr Lake. Uh, then there's uh, Lake Gaston, or depending on where you live, uh, Bugs Island. So, yes, Okaniches are right along the Virginia-North Carolina line. And Posse Clay is the head chief of the Okaniches, whom already were strong allies and trading partners with the English, a.k.a. settlers. Now, 
we have already learned that um, the Indian tribe being the Susquehannocks, they have established various encampments, um, a couple being uh, not too far from where the Okanichi village is at the stream along the Roanoke River. Now, the presence of the uh, Susquehannocks, um, and not just the presence of Susquehannock Indians alone, but their encampments nearby o Okanichi Village, does concern Chief Posseclay and his peoples, or his people, rather, I should say. But when we say peoples, that can mean um, many of his other uh, people below him whom are living in the village. They all have a reason to be concerned, because the, it's one thing to to now all of a sudden realize that Susquehannock Indians are living nearby. But the problem is that this is not a short-term um, issue. For the Okanichis, they know that the Susquehannocks are going to be living there long-term. And it's not just the Okanichis that are along, along the Roanoke River. There are other Indian tribes whom have been allowed to establish settlements as well as trading um, relations with the Okanichis uh, through the direct consent of the o of uh, Chief Posseclay and other um, warriors high above within the greater Okanichi um, tribe. But as I said a moment ago, this is not a short-term uh, issue. Uh, the Okanichis now are coming to the realization that with the Susquehannocks nearby, what are the Susquehannocks going to be looking for? Allies. And not just allies in terms of who's going to be on their side if in the event a conflict ensues, but they need trading partners. So for the Susquehannocks to start searching for allies and trading partners is going to become very, very unsettling for the Okanichis. The biggest concern for Chief Posseclay would be knowing that the Susquehannocks could find means of luring other um, tribes nearby into their camp and perhaps spread rumors about the Okanichis that are false and damaging to the point where some of these other Indian tribes might decide, well, hey, if this is, if this is really the real thing that's being said, yeah, we'll go along with them. And given the situation they're in, yeah, we, we could feel sorry for them if they've been displaced. It doesn't take much to get persuaded into doing something that, in the end, can have uh, negative repercussions. Well, how about this question? What big mistake did Susquehannock diplomat representatives make which involved their neighbors, the Okanichis? What do you all think the Susquehannocks from high above, what mistake do you think they all made involving their neighbors, the Okanichis? Diplomat, diplomat reps from the Susquehannock end asked the Okanichis to join them in their war against the enemy. Who is their enemy? The English. This is a lot to be asking, folks. You know, it's the Okanichis are already um, uncomfortable as it is, knowing that the Susquehannocks are not far away. But now all of a sudden, the Susquehannock leaders are asking the Okanichis to choose between English trading partners and new Indian arrivals. In other words, the Susquehannocks are, are going as far as asking the Okanichis to forego trading alliances that have been around for... I don't know if I would say for a hundred years, but they've been around for quite some time. You know, it's one thing to ask for a favor, but some favors are favors that to me could pose as red flags. And to ask the Okanichis to choose between their alliance with English trading partners in terms of trading, as well as going on the side of new Indian arrivals into territory that's already been established, it's a lot to be asking for. In the aftermath of the Susquehannock request, Okanichi messengers, or I should say dispatchers, notified their English trading partners 
by informing them where Susquehannocks could be found. In other words, the Okanichis have intelligence. It's intelligence meaning they have information exactly where the Susquehannocks are encamped, not far from where their primary uh, town or village uh, settlement has been established for some time. So because this intelligence is going to come into play, I think it's fair to say that the English, English trading um, partners or just um, those on the, the side of the English, given that, you know, we have to keep in mind that the um, Susquehannock, um, not the Susquehannock, but the Okanichi messengers and dispatchers didn't have to journey all the way from the Virginia-North Carolina line into Jamestown. They probably um, met somewhere halfway and notified the head, um, the head, the head-level guru of uh, English trading partnership to say, hey, you need to notify your men below you that the Susquehannocks are trying to lure us into um, into a fight, and that is they want to lure us into uh, siding with you all, uh, siding against you all. Now, were forts being constructed along with horsemen patrolling the frontiers whom had forts built per Governor Berkeley's uh, requested proposals? Remember from the previous podcast, Governor Berkeley want, wanted forts being constructed he wanted horsemen patrolling the frontiers. He he's trying to do everything he can to ensure that um, that the Susquehannocks might not come into um, villages and uh, launch you know raids. But he's also very concerned about that rebel rouser in Nathaniel Bacon, not just Nathaniel Bacon himself, but those whom have taken up arms with Bacon. So the answer, the question is, were forts being constructed along with horsemen patrolling the frontiers whom had forts built per Governor Berkeley's requested proposals? The answer is yes. Despite the fact that Nathaniel Bacon himself had been engaging in exact opposite by taking all Indian matters into his own hands, which included having many followers whom believed behind what he represented. So think about this. Governor Berkeley has requested these proposals, and they are going through. But the unfortunate thing is that Nathaniel Bacon's doing the exact opposite. He's still being defiant. He's still in this I-me-myself world. I mean, I think it's fair to say that's, that you could have a dozen men talk to Nathaniel Bacon until they were blue in the face, but do you think he would listen to anything he, they, those dozen men would say? Probably not. The bottom line is that Nathaniel Bacon, um, I hate to say this, he's a manipulator. He's a troublemaker. He's a rebel rouser. He's everything that represents anti-establishment, anti-order. He, um, For him, it's either his way or the highway. It's fair to say that he would be what we would consider in today's time, not trying to sound political, folks, but just keep it in mind, in today's time, Nathaniel Bacon would be the equivalent of someone who represents partisan politics. Multiple letters uh, were exchanged between uh, Governor William Berkeley and Nathaniel Bacon. Over a short period of time, Berkeley warned Bacon that his actions constituted a mutiny. What does mutiny mean, folks? Is, is engaging in a mutiny a good or a bad thing? I think the answer, the answer is pretty obvious. So it, it's, a bad, um, it's a bad action. A mutiny is an open rebellion against persons of higher authority. Okay, who's a person of higher authority who's trying to restore order? Governor Berkeley. And who's leading, who's leading a mutiny? Nathaniel Bacon. What do Nathaniel Bacon and his followers refuse to do? They refuse to adhere to policies or rules from high above. Hard to believe that even 300 some years ago, or maybe 400 some years ago, that that um, there were those in um, Jamestown, Virginia, or just in Virginia in general, who were dissenters. Not just dissenters, but dissenters who were causing so much trouble to where they were putting the government's um, the government at stake to where 
where each day would be a struggle for government to function properly. Well, I have to remind myself that even 400-some years ago, life in Jamestown, Virginia, given that that was Virginia's first capital, life in Jamestown, I mean, I already know that life in Jamestown was not perfect, but it is fair to say that even in the closed doorways of when the General Assembly convened, that politics was cutthroat, it was nasty, and there were some men whom loved to cause mischief. And as time went along, we had a we have one who is uh, creating mischief, but doing so at high levels of extremism, being none other than Mr. Nathaniel Bacon. Did Governor Berkeley gather or assemble men from nearby Jamestown to capture Nathaniel Bacon? Yes. Berkeley and several soldiers navigated terrain from all corners surrounding the James River. Okay, so it sounds like that they spent more than one night um, navigating, rather I should say they spent more than one day and night navigating the terrain from all corners surrounding the James River. Unfortunately, they came up short in capturing Nathaniel Bacon. He had already crossed the James River by going south. So he must have beaten um, Governor Berkeley and his uh, men, not by much. So we have to wonder, is it still possible for Governor Berkeley and his uh, crew of men to successfully capture Nathaniel Bacon? That we'll have to be um we will have to wait and see on that but i think there still is a possibility now while assisting with the search process along the falls of the james river uh, governor berkeley went about suspending nathaniel bacon from the governor's council aka the council of state do you think this was a smart move i think it is perhaps by removing nathaniel bacon from a top level position by being in the governor's inner circle, this could make Nathaniel Bacon realize that, hey, not only are his actions annoying the governor and annoying those whom are on the side of Nathaniel Bacon, but his actions are causing him to receive something like a demerit, okay, or a demotion, okay, to me, this, the demotion is losing your um, seat on the governor's council. You know, the council of state is an elite body of men. And, I, and I'm saying body of men, folks, because in 17th century, we don't have women in the government. Women aren't allowed to participate. I know that doesn't sound right, but that's, that's the way it was. So, and I should also point out that... Uh, 15 years prior to 1676, Parliament passed in 1661, and I'm sure many of you heard, have heard me talk about this piece of legislation before, but for those of you who are new to my podcasts, I will mention it right now, and I think you all should find it very beneficial and um, relevant. Parliament in 1661 passed the Test Act. The Test Act was all about loyalty. In other words, if you worked for the in the British government, your loyalty had to be sworn to the Anglican Church, aka the Church of England. Yes, you could be Protestant, but that does that did not automatically mean that you uh, would be allowed to participate in the government. If you were a dissenter, of course, when I think of dissenters in Virginia, I think of Baptists, I think of uh, Methodists, all things opposite of. Um, Anglican, Church of England. So if you are a Protestant being a Baptist or a Methodist, what do you think the chances are of you being being allowed to participate in the government? In other words, be able to work for the government, be on the governor's council. Uh, the chances of that happening, it's zero percent. Now, this law remained on the books, folks. Not to get ahead of the game, but I think, but as I've said, for those of you who um, are new to my podcasts and don't know anything about the Test Act, I, I 
from 1661. I I know I've already mentioned a few things, but how about this one? Parliament did not repeal the Test Act until 1828. Finally, those whom were not of the Anglican faith could finally now be allowed to participate in the government. You know what I find interesting about the year 1828 is that Two years before Parliament repealed this legislation, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on July 4th of 1826. And Thomas Jefferson not only is the architect of American freedom, but more so the architect behind um, religious freedom. One of the three things that he chose to be remembered for on his tombstone was the founding father for the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedoms which came about um, three years after the uh, Treaty of Paris in 1783. But um, one thing we just need to be reminded about is that um, you know freedom of religion is something that should never be taken for granted because there are still places in the world where people are being persecuted all because of their religious faith. And of course, as Thomas Jefferson believed that uh, religion was a um, private matter, one thing I did uh, learn when my wife and I were in Colonial Williamsburg Saturday was that uh, for any newcomers who came to Williamsburg, Virginia, they had to register with the county um, clerk. In other words, yes, you had to register by letting the county clerk know where you were living, but you also had to register your religion. So in other words, if you openly admitted that you were of uh, Baptist or Methodist faith, you would be allowed to worship at a um, meeting house. In other words, there were no Baptist churches in Virginia. At one time, there were no Methodist churches. The only church that you actually could go into to worship was the Anglican church. So remember that, folks. At one time, if you were a Baptist or Methodist in Virginia and you wanted to practice your faith, you went to a meeting house to do so. You didn't have a church of your own. So, you know, back to what we're discussing here, Governor Berkeley, I, I believe he did the right thing by suspending Nathaniel Bacon from the governor's council. He is taking away one of his privileges, the, the uh, Council of State uh, being that, up, that select group who advises the governor on important decisions. They advise the governor of uh, bills that the House of Burgesses has uh, passed, and it would be up to the governor to sign those bills into law or to veto them, and, you know, if he vetoes them, then, you know, there's still a chance that the House of Burgesses can um, can rework a bill or a set of bills to where if, the, if they get reworked, then, yes, uh, the governor can sign them into the law, can sign them into law with the consent of his uh, Council of State. So by not having Berkeley on the Council of State, or by not having Bacon on the Council of State, Governor Berkeley is hoping that maybe this will make him rethink his actions that he is already partaking in and realize that, well, if, if I want to be in Governor Berkeley's good graces, then maybe it's time for me to get my act together and stop acting like a hothead. Wishful thinking, but um, unfortunately, nope, that's not going to be enough to stop um, Nathaniel Bacon. Now, Governor Berkeley is remaining steadfast in destroying all rebellious movement, which included giving rebels an ultimatum where they were required to submit their allegiances to the government before or by by the end of the month. So by the end of the month here, we're looking at a... The month of May has not ended just yet, but Governor Berkeley has given an ultimatum to all of those rebels that, look, you either resubmit your allegiance to the government and if you don't then expect um, other uh, privileges to be revoked. Governor Berkeley went as far as offering to step down from his post. He even went about dismissing the General Assembly and called for new elections which had not been done in 14 years. So think about it folks if here we are in 1676, May of 1676. When do you think the last time there might have been uh, elections for within the General Assembly? Probably about 1661, 1662. 
So, man, to think 14 years and there had been no election? On the other hand, though, if you had elections every year, that would probably create a, um, not just a crisis, but it would probably create a lot of conflicts. One thing I have learned in when going to Colonial Williamsburg is that House of Burgess members, it was their, the, if you served in the House of Burgesses, obviously you had to own lots of land. You had to, um, you had to be a Protestant faith, and that obviously meant being a member of the Church of England. But when you served in the uh, House of Burgesses, it was a position that you served for, for life. Uh, the only other means that you could be removed from would have been uh, retirement, uh, resignation, if you were forced out um, because of some improper activity that went on. I don't know how much that would have happened, but there was always the possibility that one could be removed via resignation, or and the other one would have been death. If, uh, if a House of Burgess member died unexpectedly, then obviously there would have had to have been um, an appointment to replace that uh, Burgess member's uh, that uh, the seat of the uh, deceased Burgess member. So the fact that we've got now elections for the first time in 14 years, that's uh, pretty big. And you, now you have to wonder how many of the um, men on the House of Burgesses will still retain their seats. Of course, one thing we should keep in mind is that none of those Burgess members have to worry about raising millions of dollars like politicians have to in today's time just to be reelected. Now, what Indian tribe had the misfortunes of making contact with Nathaniel Bacon and his followers? I hate to tell you all the answer to this one, but it's going to have to be mentioned. This Indian tribe, I don't believe it was intended upon them to um, make actual contact with Nathaniel Bacon and his followers, but it tragically happened. The answer is the Okanichis. They were the ones whom informed Nathaniel Bacon of where the Susquehannock forts lied in vicinity to their location along the Roanoke River, including the total numbers of people per each fort. Now, all of that actually is good because, you know, the Okanichis need to notify somebody on the English side of what is going on, given that the Susquehannocks have tried to lure the Okanichis into turning against the uh, English the problem is that the Okanichis don't know that Nathaniel Bacon is really not their friend. Remember, folks, what does Nathaniel Bacon not like? He does not like the fact that Governor Berkeley and the greater body of the General Assembly support alliances with Indians, most notably the Okanichis. If Nathaniel Bacon had it his way, he wouldn't want any alliances with Indians. And I think it's fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon is one of those um, men, I mean, we've already established he's a rebel rouser, he's a manipulator, a troublemaker, you name it, but it's fair to say that he likes burning bridges with people. In other words, as you know, that saying, don't burn a bridge with someone, in other words, you never know when you might need them, might need... Um, a group of individuals or an individual later on down the road. And of course, I, I think it'd be fair to say that all of us have probably been guilty at some point in our lives of maybe having burned a bridge with someone, depending on what was at stake. But for Nathaniel Bacon, he obviously doesn't care to where no matter what he does, as long as it satisfies him and it benefits him, he doesn't care how it, um, he doesn't care how the repercussions impact everyone else uh, below him or above him who um, have different ideologies. Now, days later, the Okanichis did um, take up Nathaniel Bacon's uh, requests to um, go after um, as many Susquehannock peoples as there were that lived nearby the Okanichi establishment. So the Okanichis attacked and killed a majority of the 150 people within the Susquehannock's town. Okay, so this, this is uh, big. I don't know if I would say it's glamorous, but the Okanichis have to think about their well-being. Unfortunately, it does result in violence. 
And sadly, you know, history has shown that violence has often been used as a means of um, achieving um, a mission. Okanichi's, in order to prove to Nathaniel Bacon and his men that they had actually killed a great deal of um, Susquehannock's peoples, they brought evidence to Bacon in the form of scalp. Scalp meaning hair, beaver pelts, and seven Susquehannock prisoners, all as gifts. Is this enough for Nathaniel Bacon? No. What does he want? He wants the seven prisoners dead. Okay, well, the Okanichis fulfilled his request. They executed the seven prisoners. Unfortunately, Nathaniel Bacon still isn't satisfied, and it, this really is what ticks the Okanichis off. They pretty much say to Bacon and his men, look, we've stuck our necks out for you. We got rid of all these Susquehannock peoples nearby our place, nearby our settlement, so that they won't be a um, distraction to us no more. You all don't have anything to worry about now. You all can go back uh, to, to Jamestown uh, and back to your uh, settlements. You all are, you all are immune. <laughs> you all don't have to worry about anything. But is Nathaniel Bacon satisfied? No. So a fight breaks out between the English and the Okanichi. Sadly, Nathaniel Bacon and his followers killed a handful of Okanichis along with members of other Indian nations that were um, allies of the Okanichis. Do you think this has made things even worse, folks? I would say it has made things so bad now to where it's no longer now a war between the Indians and the English. This is a war now, to me, that is within the English. It's within within their um, inner confines. This isn't a, you know, some people could say, oh, it's a battle between the haves and the have-nots. No, this is now a, a conflict involving English peoples within, to some extent, maybe the haves and the have-nots. But, of course, when I think of a have-not, I, I think of someone being the exact opposite of a have Nathaniel Bacon is a have. In other words, he's got everything he wants. I mean, he, he's got a plantation, a state. I mean, he's got enough land. The problem is that he doesn't like who's in charge. So this is just a classic example of someone acting like a partisan, someone acting like a, a rogue leader, a rogue individual who has no limits, no boundaries as to how far his actions go. It's all about seeking gratification, gratification that has no end. For Nathaniel Bacon, he might as well eliminate everybody whom is inferior to him. He might as well see to it that everybody from within the inner circle as well as from the outside be eliminated. The only people in Nathaniel Bacon's eyes whom should even be running the government are those whom adhere to him, those whom, um, who share his philosophy of governing. To me, Nathaniel Bacon would almost um, represent um, leaders who've become ruthless dictators throughout history. If I say any more, I might um, forget, what, forget that we have more to talk about. So our next question is the following. Is Jordan's point where Nathaniel Bacon and his radical group of followers initially mobilized, and given that this is where they initially mobilized, did this happen in Charles City or in Henrico County? Well, I can tell you this much. I know Charles City County is uh, just east of where I live. It's, it's about halfway between uh, Richmond and Williamsburg on historic Virginia State Route 5. It also just so happens that, for, that historic State Route 5 goes through Henrico County as well. So the actual answer, believe it or not, is Henrico County. And Jordan's Point today, folks, is located in um, Prince George County. But at one time it was in Henrico, and the reason for that was because of the way the counties were shaped. We have to be reminded of 
that whenever we see maps from 400 years ago, yes, there might still be counties in existence today, but it doesn't mean that the counties that were in existence 400, 400 years ago it didn't mean that they still had the sh same shape. And um, in other words, you know, some counties are big, some counties are small, some counties are medium. They all come in different sizes. In other words, the structure of the county was not the same 400 years ago as it is today. So whatever, um, you know, for all I know, Prince George County was probably not around in 1676. Henrico County probably encompassed what is now Prince George County. So we have to keep in mind that counties do change in shape and size as time uh, progresses. Now, May 25th of 1676, which is Election Day in Henrico County, the county courthouse nearby the James River, as well as Curl's Plantation, Bacon's home or state, just before May 25th, about uh, two weeks two weeks earlier, we have to go back to May 10th of 1670, uh, May 10th of 1676, a proclamation, and do all of you know what a proclamation is? It's an official announcement. So a proclamation was made from Henrico County Courthouse declaring Nathaniel Bacon and his followers to be in a state of rebellion. Okay, so it has been made official that Nathaniel Bacon and all of his followers are uh, in a state of rebellion and if they were found guilty, they could be found uh, guilty uh, for perhaps inciting a an insurrection. Uh, they could be found guilty of inciting um, or participating in um, acts of mutiny. But the bottom line is, is that a proclamation has been issued declaring Nathaniel Bacon and his followers to be in a state of rebellion. Now, let's forward back to May 25th of 1676. Nathaniel Bacon and his neighbor, James Cruz, whom orchestrated Bacon's rise to leadership at Jordan's Point in April, it just so happens that these two men become Henrico County's two Burgesses. Remember, folks, um, when the General Assembly first established in 1619, the, one of the agreements was that there would be two Burgess representatives per each um, per each place, and at the time it was referred to as hundred, uh, meaning that there were more than a hundred or more people living um, in a village. We had, you know, Flower Dew hundred, Bermuda hundred, uh, just to name a few. Now, what I find even more um, fascinating and hard to believe is that in 1676, Henrico County, folks, was considered frontier planter territory. Now, when I would have, whenever I think of frontier territory, I think of uh, territory well west of the fall line, um, perhaps starting in the Piedmont, but going into what we now know as present-day Shenandoah Valley territory. And while yes, that can be, that could have been definitely considered frontier territory, I think it's fair to say that Henrico County probably was considered frontier because it was uh, well west of Jamestown. But it was west enough to where, you know, it was along the James River, probably not far from the fall line separating the coastal plain and the Piedmont, but enough uh, frontier territory to, um, to ensure that, hey, you know, we do, that protection needs to be made for those living along the frontier if in the event something does happen. So we don't always have to go... Um, as far west as the Virginia, Kentucky, or Tennessee, or West Virginia line to say that it's frontier. Even in 1676, um, you know, say 60 miles from Jamestown at best, because I know from where I live to Williamsburg, it's between, say, 60, 70 miles. So where, where Midlothian, of course, Midlothian, Virginia was not um, established in 1676. Midlothian, Virginia would not come about till about 18... I want to say sometime in the 18th uh, century, but uh, the bottom line is that even in 1676, where I live today, could have very well been considered frontier territory. The big issue now at stake pertained to Nathaniel Bacon's holding a seat in the General Assembly, and I would definitely agree that this is the big issue now. 
I mean, I, I find it odd that here he has won a seat. There are obviously enough men out there who like Nathaniel Bacon. For one, he represents them, and two, for all we know, the men whom Bacon represents are probably um, in agreement with him uh, acting hostile, taking up arms against uh, the government. And I'm wondering if some of these men whom, um, whom are Bacon's constituents have uh, gone along with him in terms of being part of the greater radical group of followers. It is possible. For all we know that the, some of the, for, for all we know, the men whom Bacon could be representing as constituents to me could be a classic example of uh, what we call so close but so far away. We think we know our neighbors, but then we don't. And how true that could be even in today's time with what took place uh, last year on uh, January the sixth. Not to sound political, but it's just one of those examples of what can happen when. Um, when people are so uh, disenchanted and people are so um, unhappy that um, extremism gets the better of them. So yes, the big issue now at stake pertains to Nathaniel Bacon's holding a seat in the General Assembly after having already been declared a rebel, a.k.a. a traitor. James Cruz went to Green Spring, uh, Governor Berkeley's estate outside of Jamestown, to defend Bacon's case before the governor. Bacon's letter consisted of excuses behind past misgivings, including wishes to remain loyal. Now, is it fair to say that Bacon's letter is a manipulative one? I would say it is. May 28, 1676, Nathaniel Bacon wrote another letter of desperation to Governor Berkeley, which included requesting a commission, but the governor and the Council of State did not budge, considering they condemned Bacon's actions against the Okanichis, and rightfully so. Here's an example. Here's here's an example. Here, did Nathaniel Bacon have any consent whatsoever to go into Okanichi territory? Did Nathaniel Bacon um, have proper consent from Governor Berkeley to request the Okanichis to kill the Susquehannocks? No. No consent, no, no written authority. So did Governor Berkeley ask Nathaniel Bacon to, um, to attack the Okanichis and to massacre many of, their, um, many of their people? No. So Nathaniel Bacon, folks, is a man who does things but does them without the consent from those above. That's not how you should be getting things done. So yes, the governor and the Council of State condemned his actions against the Okanichis, which resulted in not only a hundred Indians being slaughtered, but the loss of trading partners to the deaths of nearly a dozen English soldiers. Well, Nathaniel Bacon lost, yeah, about 12 of his own men. 12 of his own men went out there, you know, some could say, oh, they went out there against their own will. No, they didn't. They went out there, they, they knew what was going on because they shared Bacon's ideologies. They shared um, his beliefs that, um, that Governor Berkeley and his administration should not be doing any kind of business with Indians whatsoever. But the fact remains that a dozen English soldiers died. So that puts uh, Governor Berkeley in a sense of, um, in a sense of, um, how do you call it? There could be those who could, turn their backs on Governor Berkeley and say that Governor Berkeley could be held liable for the deaths of 12 soldiers. So after May 28th, the correspondence between Berkeley and Bacon became severed in the midst of General Assembly soon beginning to convene. Poor Governor Berkeley. I don't think there's not a dull moment for him, but this is not what he envisioned. Sure, he could, you know, any governor or leader could can expect some conflict, but when they get a rebel rouser and then people who um, are inspired by Nathaniel Bacon, even if they are not participating in the government, just the fact that they are inspired by Nathaniel Bacon, yeah, it's, it's a lot for Governor Berkeley to be worried about. Because for all Governor Berkeley knows, 
not only could he not only is he a subject of threats, but for all we know, Governor Berkeley could be a target of assassination by Nathaniel Bacon. That to me is the worst fear right there unto itself. What was at stake for English colonists regarding the Susquehannock dilemma? The matter before them revolved around the struggle between Governor Berkeley and Nathaniel Bacon in terms of whom had power and, had, and how the powers themselves were to be exercised based upon level of authority. Okay, Governor William Berkeley, what is he trying to do? He's trying to preserve order, whereas Nathaniel Bacon is causing trouble to where he feels the need to do whatever satisfies him, but doing so without consent from leadership above, being that of Governor Berkeley and the Council of State. So that's really the, that's the issue that's at stake, folks, for the English colonists regarding the dilemma. It's not so much the Indians, it's the struggle for, um, for whom has uh, power and whom doesn't, but how the power is to be exercised, whom has the right to um, authorize an order, who doesn't. You know, this. what Nathaniel Bacon is doing is that he is violating the system of, not maybe not violating, he's dis disrespecting the system of checks and balances. In other words, he doesn't care about how government's supposed to work. He doesn't care that he's trying to overpower uh, one branch of government from the other because it's all about him, which to me is not right, but sadly it's becoming that way. For the Indians, their pressing concern pertains to survival, given that other tribes like the Pamunkeys had already left their towns for safety purposes, but anxiously wanted to escape hiding given the circumstances that Nathaniel Bacon and his followers had placed all those Indian tribes given the state of emergency that's going on. So it's not just one or two Indian tribes, folks, that have been um, jeopardized. We're talking, we're not talking a hundred Indian tribes. We might be talking about 10 or more at best. To close out this uh, podcast segment for tonight, uh, Let's listen to the following here. One thing for certain, Nathaniel Bacon was responsible in turning the worlds of Virginians, I should say English settlers or colonists, including the Indians, upside down. So in other words, he didn't turn the world of one group upside down. He turned his actions in uh, massacring the Okanichis and other Indian um tribes people nearby as well as massacring uh, the Susquehannocks all because he lured the Okanichis into doing it. He has turned the worlds of English and Indians upside down. And because he has done this, the thought of returning, the thought of returning to any pre-1674 normalcy and I say 1674 because that was the year of Nathaniel Bacon's arrival into Virginia. So the thought of, of returning to anything that was pre-1674 uh, normalcy stood completely remote, or I should say slim. Bacon's world had him placed at the helm, calling all the shots, including the rest of government, swearing their allegiance directly to him. Nathaniel Bacon has become a man whom has divided Virginia's peoples to where government itself could collapse, all because of his egregious personal ambitions. Does anybody know what egregious means? Inappropriate. All because of his egregious personal ambitions in the name to seeking power. It's one thing to want power. But how a person or persons access it will either make or break government's ability to function in times of uncertainty. And is Virginia's government in a time of uncertainty right now? In a crisis? Yes. And who do we have to thank for being in this crisis? Nathaniel Bacon. Do you believe if Nathaniel Bacon had obeyed Governor Berkeley's orders and had Nathaniel Bacon respected the boundaries had Nathaniel Bacon and his men not 
decided not to have gone into Okanichi territory and had they not done what they had done on Okanichi territory would we be looking at a different scenario yes but on the other hand it would probably be fair to say or someone could come back and say well if Nathaniel Bacon had not done what he had done in June of 1676 in massacring the Okanichis or having the Okanichis take out the Susquehannocks then it would have happened somewhere else down the road or there could have been someone else just like Nathaniel Bacon who would have done it. Who knows? We have no way of knowing, but what we do know is that some very, very terrible things have happened. Terrible things have happened to where any means of reconciliation is now no longer um, doable. But who do you blame here? Well, if you ask me, I think it's Nathaniel Bacon, but that's my opinion. Of course, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but we should keep in mind that not everyone's entitled to their own facts either. Of course, we should thank the late um, New York, the late U.S. Senator from New York, who's been deceased for about 20 years, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was the one that uh, said that um, one is entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. It could be that maybe Nathaniel Bacon feels as though he's entitled to his own facts. After all, he feels as though he's been entitled to everything else, but yet, but yet he doesn't care how it impacts everyone else. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, talk more about uh, what leads up to the inevitable. We're getting there, but in order to get to the inevitable, we have to understand what happened in the past and we are already um, achieving that as as I speak. So thank you, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but uh, you all have helped make this happen. So uh, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. And I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>